you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, here at RK Motors which is just north of Uptown Charlotte, where I am joined by the owner of RK Motors, Rob Kaufman. Uh, Rob, thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So you just gave me a full tour of this sprawling facility, which I, we were discussing. I, I've driven by it probably a thousand times on 77 going north, oftentimes probably stuck. And okay. I, I see the RK Motors sign. I think that's a place glad I'd like to go. Glad <laughs> you finally stopped in. Yeah, people are welcome. If you like muscle cars and hot rods, uh, this is the place to come visit. And uh, we have cars and coffee once a month so uh, anyone can come by tell me about this business rob how many cars do you sell how many people do you have on staff like how's it work well i guess the uh, it starts with me and cars because rk motors i'm the rk it started out just with a small little operation of some older cars that i had bought and kind of grew into a much bigger business where we now have about 110,000 square feet um rk motors sells you know something like 250, 300 cars a year, probably 25-ish million dollars of inventory of kind of classic cars, muscle cars, hot rods, kind of stick with that sort of stuff. I also have my personal cars uh, next door, so some of the older stuff, the funkier, you know, pre-war and 1901 and weird things that people come by and see, the original Junior Johnson Mystery Motor NASCAR (laughs) cars, so I have a little bit of everything over here, but uh, anyone can come by, but it's been a fun business to take... You know, after 12 years of doing it, we've made a lot of mistakes, but I think it's a decent little business now. It's mostly based on the internet. So if you go on rkmotorscharlotte.com, there's all the inventory. A lot of people tell me they get the, the email blast of the latest inventory coming in, and uh, it's a fun business. You know, it's not going to be the most profitable thing ever, but as long as it makes a little bit of money and uh, covers its costs, it's, it's a fun business to have. Well, it's certainly fun to walk through these showrooms and, and check this out. And as Rob mentioned, a lot of it is uh, online sales, but... There is a showroom here that's open what, Monday through Friday, I guess, and people can yeah, it's got regular it regular hours and uh, come in, check it out. You don't have to buy anything; just look around and uh, enjoy the cars. Yeah, and there are race cars, which I should highly encourage any race fans to check out. Like Rob was saying, we were just looking at the the Junior Johnson model that Tom Wolfe wrote about in the famous Last American Hero story. So that was from what sixty three. Yeah, okay, exactly. And uh, there's the Le Mans Ford GT car as well. Uh, there's truly a lot of history here. and Something for everyone. If you, yeah. like, if you like cars, you'll find something you like. Well, you obviously love everything. How did your love of cars begin, if I can start with the broadest question imaginable? Yeah, sure. The, uh, the story I've been told was by my mom that said, well, my first word was mom, car was two, and dad was three. <laughs> 
So I'm going <laughs> to stick with that because she was there. And uh, I just always liked cars. I had tons of little matchbox cars when I was a kid and built models and was a mechanic when I was a teenager and just kind of came by it. Just somehow you know, factory setting was uh, like cars. Took a little diversion into the world of finance, which helped me be able to get more involved with classic cars and racing, which I've done in the past 10 or 20 years. And, uh, you know, I enjoy driving all the stuff. I like to do rallies and vintage racing. As people know, I did a little bit of modern car racing. So uh, it's just a, just a passion, I guess. Yeah. And was your dad a mechanic? Do I have No, actually, he oh, was okay. a school teacher. So he was a school <laughs> Okay. So, so uh, you became a mechanic just no, I think he, he does that, but knew how to put in gas and uh, turn the key. <laughs> but uh, he was highly encouraging of, uh, of my uh, early passion they bought. They bought me two junkyard 1967 Firebirds when I was 13 years old and said, well, you can get your license in three years, so maybe you can take all the parts and make one good one out of it, and you'll have a car drive. So that was, that was the beginning. Okay. So then you drove those <coughs> Firebirds as a teenager in high No, actually, I figured out that it was really hard to put two junkyard cars together, <laughs> and I wound up selling a taillight for one of them for $20 and realized I should probably just sell them all for parts and buy a better car. So I did that and traded and retraded, and I guess here we are at RK Motors. I'm still doing it. Is it something about the mechanical side of cars? I mean, we were just walking through, and you're you're pointing out engines and the interiors, and uh, that's not quite right. That restoration, that's not right. the perfect, like, you know, exact replica. I mean, w what about the cars fascinates you? It seems like it's everything about them. Well, I, I think it's interesting to see how they evolved over time. So when you go back to the early stuff, and, well, why doesn't it have front brakes? Well, they didn't really figure out how to do front brakes. You know, then, okay, then they figured out mechanical ones, then they figured out how to put hydraulic brakes in, and then they figured out disc brakes. So I think it's interesting to see the progression of how people had problems trying to make the cars faster and faster and more reliable and racing them and the proactive solutions they came up with. Okay, let's put a supercharger on it. Okay, now it blows up. Then we need a better oiling system, and you can see the progression over time. So I think it's kind of interesting to see them in context of, what was happening in the period, right? My er oldest car is actually from 1901, and the Wright brothers and Kitty Hawk was 1903. So that was before <laughs> right. even airplanes. So when you start looking at that car, you're like, well, that's really old, but it was even before airplanes. So you see how much airplanes have progressed since then. So it's kind of interesting to me just to see the compare and contrast, I guess. So it's an appreciation of history's influence on the automobile as much as the automobile itself. Yeah, and they're fun to use. I mean, the old time stuff they're slower but they're harder to drive so it's more of a challenge in its own way so yeah. whereas a modern supercar you can press the gas and go 200 miles an hour but you know it's, it's a lot easier to do than it would have been to go 100 and something 50 years older we were looking at that that 1901 vehicle and you were just explaining to me that uh, the impact that airplanes had on the development of the automobile, which I never thought of before, but <laughs> downforce and aerodynamics, right. as, as you mentioned, especially like post-World War II, when they really learned, I guess, how to optimize those, obviously, jet planes. planes. Jet planes, right, versus propellers. Right, exactly. That all made its way into cars. Right, and even now with aerospace materials and carbon fiber and, you know, the CFD, you know, technology, I mean, it's it's still happening today for better or for worse well progress is progress you <laughs> just have to yeah, I think one needs to evolve you're not gonna be able to stop that clearly exactly you mentioned that you also do some racing rob and i saw on twitter this past weekend you were in sonoma yeah one of my favorite tracks uh and uh beautiful california weather we we're the big vintage racing event out there by the sbra they do a nice job on organizing you know multiple classes of different kinds of cars they had some vintage uh, NASCAR cars, which was fun, some old drum brake ones, uh, which was kind of neat to see on the track. 
I had an old Trans Am car, so a, a Firebird actually, a Jerry Titus Firebird 1970. They had a whole mix of cars from that period. Uh, I raced a Can Am car, which is a pretty, pretty neat, uh, you know, super high power, really low weight, big fat tire, kind of fun, <laughs> fun monster to drive around. So it was a good, good weekend. How many hours do you race uh, on in one of these events? Well. The, the drivers are old and the cars are old, so it's <laughs> a little easier on you. The uh, probably about half hour races, um, okay. which is in those old timer things, pretty uh, pretty good stint. Makes yeah. you respect how hard they were to drive back in the day. And you tweeted uh, hashtag Keep It Shiny Side Up. I take it <laughs> that that is what happened this past weekend. I, I, was, I was fortunate to be able to do that. I had one little mechanical issue, <laughs> but uh, so I might have a new motor rebuild. Uh, but yeah, keeping them shiny side. Vint vintage cars seriously are vintage safety, so it's important to realize that it's about preserving the cars and getting them out and having people see the old stuff out on the track and running rather than sitting in a museum but you know it's it's unwise to take a car from 1950 60 70 and race it to within an inch of its life and yours i'd say you know, people got killed a lot back then yeah. and uh, the safety has changed quite a bit so uh but, you know, it's fun to still get them out and use them. So you, you've raced quite a bit around the world. You've also raced at the 24-hour of Le Mans. You've raced, I know, uh, I believe in Dubai as yeah, well. Dubai, Daytona. Uh, yeah. We did some endurance racing, so that was good fun. <coughs> did some with uh, Brian Vickers and Michael Waltrip as well, which was good fun. Marcus Ambrose, co-drove one time, Travis Pastrana. So it was good fun to mix the European guys and uh, some of the good old American stuff. It was fun. Do you have a favorite place that you raced? I take it. France would probably be pretty high on the list. Uh, Le Mans is a very special place. Daytona 24 Hours is a very special event as well. Um, it's such an iconic uh, road race, and uh, so many famous people race there. It's actually beyond the high banks yourself, you know, flat out. You know, those cars, maybe 195, 97 miles an hour is just pretty cool. I saw this as well on your social media that I believe it was late April. We, we, you're going through Europe on some sort of tour auto optic 24. Oh, yeah, we did a little okay. race with it, you know, I guess. I mean, maybe you get the diversity award for different kinds of cars, <laughs> but there was a there was a, a week long event in France that we did with a, an old French rally car called the Renault Alpine. So it's about 750 kilos and 200 horsepower. So it's a lot of power to weight ratio, and uh, it's good fun. So it's it's like a rally race plus some track events. So probably about 12 hours of driving a day, five days in a row. So it was uh, pretty grueling, but good fun. Yeah. And uh, and France is. Uh, Nice place to visit. Yeah, the food is good. It looked like you were eating in a, a castle one night of some <laughs> sort, some sort of magnificent chateau. If, if you don't have to spend the whole night working on your car, you can go to go to have a nice dinner. <laughs> some, some nights, unfortunately, you have to spend it under the car. We know about your love of the automobile. Was it natural that you would develop a love of racing from loving cars? I think sort of as I figured out, cars, the cars and racing kind of go together. So I used to watch the Indy 500 on my little black and white television and Daytona 500 and you know, read about the European races and car magazines so I always always followed it and uh, over time was been lucky enough to get more and more involved with it so it's been it's been interesting you grew up in in upstate New York, in upstate yeah. New York. Yeah. Okay. so was there a car culture where you grew up or did you just sort of like develop your love for it, it uh, like well I was a mechanic in a local garage so I guess that counts as a car culture but I didn't really have a lot of time or budget for racing when I was a kid I did a little bit of Formula V which is a Volkswagen on a Formula chassis but uh you know, a little ice racing and things like that you could, but yeah. I kind of had to focus on school and uh, trying to pay the bills. When did you become so interested in racing that you knew you wanted to get involved with it from maybe like a car owner side? Well, I looked at uh, 
you know, I was doing sports car racing, you know, myself when I had a little bit more time and, and budget and, uh, and, you know, got familiar with the business side of it a bit, which is sketchy probably at best, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, at least understood basically how it worked. And I set up the predecessor company of RK Motors here in Charlotte about a dozen years ago. You know, Charlotte is a, is a small town at some level. And, uh, I was approached by some friends that, Hey, you know, Rob, you're ever think about investing in a NASCAR team as a opportunity here and you know you I know you're in the investment world and you like cars and maybe that's something you take a look at so I wound up making an investment in Michael Waltrip Racing in 1907 or 19, 19, 2007 let's get my, yeah. get my uh, centuries correct <laughs> <laughs> and uh seems like a century ago you know got involved with NASCAR then I mean I'd followed it but not as as closely and uh been pretty involved with it since then. This was after a fairly long career as an investment banker. Looking at the business of racing after being so involved on the financial side, what did you make of this investment? <laughs> well, I think I've said in other forums, it's a great sport. It's not a great business, but, right. uh, but you should be able to make a, at least a reasonable business out of it such that you could survive. And that was probably the preceding thought of the race team alliance was you know, the team should have at least a model where they can survive and continue to participate and put on the show for everybody because if you just rely on people burning cash to put up your show it's it's, it's probably not sustain as easily sustainable but as a sport itself it's a worthy endeavor it's yeah it's great i mean i love going to races i mean you know if, since i've been partners with chip and uh, chip ganassi racing we're chasing around at indycar races Le Mans, sports car races at laguna um you know nascar races so it's it's been great fun and uh, i'm a big fan before we get a little bit more in the racing, I just want to ask you a little more about the restoration process here. How many cars would you say you guys restore per year? You know, full restorations you know, take six to 18 months, depending on how extensive and, and the like you're doing. So I'd say we, at RK Motors, we probably do a dozen or so a year um, for clients. It's, it's, a, it's not a particularly lucrative business. It's, it's a, it's a st slow and steady business. And, uh, so most of the business is really, you know, repairs and turnover and things like that. But, you know, just restorations could be, it's, it's nice to see the finished product at the end. Right. And I probably do with my own cars, probably, I probably have two or three projects going on at any given time of restorations and various stages and forms myself. So. And you drive any number of cars from a pool of, it looked like about a dozen out there that you rotate through? You know, some, Charlotte weather is decent. I uh, pull, pull them out and get it run. I have an old... 69 scrambler rambler out in front right <laughs> we now just looking at that air yeah. shocks and uh 390 <laughs> scoop and uh so i like to get the plus it's red white and blue so for memorial day i thought it would be appropriate that red white and blue car to drive around but uh <laughs> but i mix it up so, you know, get the old timers out if it's not too hot um maybe a supercar or something once in a while so we try to try to mix it up well how old is a vehicle that you've driven on the roads or around here in charlotte pretty old i think we had the <laughs> we had the 07 so that's 100 and 10 years that it's probably not the ideal for uh, i-77 <laughs> stop and go traffic but uh, i think it's funny that different people react to different cars it's it, it's fun um i had my big old duesenberg which is a big giant you know 30s car and uh i bought a paddle board for my house and uh, up at the lake and uh, i didn't have a car big enough to fit it that paddle board in so i did take the duesenberg with the top down and stick the paddle board in the back so that one got a lot of looks yeah, I, I just enjoy driving them, and you know, little kids are around and can sit in them, and you know, appreciate what they are. And Looking at a Wall Street Journal story about, I believe, it was a General Motors executive who had had like a 1962 Ferrari, yeah, restored, and what that 
it meant to him. I mean, I, I know, I know, you don't strike me as the most overly sentimental type, <laughs> but but to restore somebody's like dream car, uh, that must be kind of cool, right? Yeah, it, it, that that that's fun and rewarding for the guys to do. I think that uh, exactly. Some people do it for sentimental reasons for something like that. It, it was their dads or grandfathers, or <clears throat> or means something special to them, or it's you know, just a good quality car that you know deserves to have a restoration to be you know, put back into its proper you know condition and reuse the the old Ford GT40 that I have uh which is the 1966 uh you know Mark II GT40 um a special car raced at Le Mans all right so we thought you know it was in okay shape but we wanted to really restore it back to exactly how it was in 1966 so we spent a lot of time and effort researching it and going through it so it's an interesting process you know photos and the like and for more cars that were famous in period that have a race history or something like that it's it's they're fun projects to do and maybe over the long term they're good investments who knows but uh but it's it's fun projects to do but we've done, done some fun things for people some servicemen who, who were injured and helped them out with uh you know realizing some projects so that's kind of rewarding um i like being able to do things like that that's one thing that a place like this allows you to do yeah, it's fun. It's, it's it's nice to see people's reactions when the project's complete and they, they enjoy it. I guess it's less about the investment then and more about just the passion side of it. People love cars, and there's always going to be something American about that connection between people and their vehicles, right? Well, and, and in fact, it's not just American. It's international. I was driving the little French you know, Renault around France, and people <laughs> love that thing. It, 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 people have real connections globally, you know, so that's, that's kind of fun. It, it, it goes beyond the language in the background. People just like the cars, which is, which is a nice connection. So, Rob, you mentioned 2007, you get involved as a co-owner, well, actually, later majority owner of Michael Walter Racing. And then in 2014, that was when we had the formation of the Race Team Alliance, which you were chairman. Yeah, I'm the chairman, I guess. Chairman. Exactly. So uh, Rick and Roger and these guys joke calling me Mr. Chairman. <laughs> You're the only person who sits above yeah. them. <laughs> well, that, that's sort of the joke. Oh, the chairman. Yeah. Not, not really. <laughs> the Race Team Alliance, Rob, let's just revisit the actual formation. The teams grouped together and said, hey, we all are purchasing rental cars. We're all purchasing hotel rooms. We all have our own air forces with all of these planes flying all over the country. Maybe if we organize together, we can find some efficiencies that would allow us to spend less money. I know that that's kind of been largely probably forgotten here uh, yeah. four years later, but I'm just curious, like, how did that part of the Race Team Alliance work out? Is that delivered as you intended? Um, yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. I think that you know, the, the purpose of the RTA, not to be too technical... You know, the purpose of it is to promote and grow the sport of stock car racing and pursue the long-term interests of the teams, common interests of the teams. <clears throat> the RTA is also a not-for-profit entity, so it's not trying to make a profit. It's trying to just help the teams that are members. The first thing and most obvious thing was costs, right, because you know, the RTA is not going to make the cars go faster. It's, it's, it's an association of the teams. So what we're trying to do is, okay, well, what, what are the big costs that all the teams have in common? The first thing that stuck out like a sore thumb was getting to and from races. Everyone more or less is going from Charlotte to Picketown, Indy, Sonoma, wherever, and back on a predictable schedule every single year with any one team might have a variable number, but when you start getting three, five, ten, twelve teams together, all of a sudden the numbers are pretty constant. So we're able to get that organized through a variety of steps to get to a point where we can have a number of 
specialized carriers that just bring the teams to and from, and you don't need to have a Michael Waltrip racing jet or plane to bring the team back and forth. So to me, one of the best examples of just saving millions of dollars doesn't impact the show at all. And it's just a more efficient system. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, there's been a lot of smaller versions of that, but that's the most big and obvious one. Um, what's happened more in the past couple of years is as the organization matured, we got more engaged with NASCAR and other stakeholders and how things worked. We could address, you know, more central issues to the racing, the sport, what are the teams are doing. Uh, so we negotiated the charter agreement, which was really sort of a franchise system for the teams. Um, we laid out a lot more clearly how, do the, how does the rules process work, when, how, how do changes get implemented? Because the teams are not against changes. I think in general they're in favor of evolution and trying to promote and grow the sport. Just change needs to be done in a reasonable and planned out sensible fashion, right? So mm -hmm. if you think about costs for a team um, when it comes to competition stuff, you're developing and making parts and cars and that's fine and there's a normal life cycle to those things if you stop making this and start making that it doesn't really change it very much but if you have to throw away a bunch of things that are otherwise you were going to use and use something else because the rule changed that's pretty costly and a waste so we just try to work with nascar and the other folks in the industry to make a process around that so you can time when we make changes how it works so it normally flows with the life cycles of things so that's really probably been the least the biggest focus of late. Rob, that started charter system uh, beginning of 2016 established th uh, these real uh, kind of uh, committees in a uh, sense, right? Gui guidelines. Yeah. Guidelines, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you, you have a team owner's council now, which I know a lot of people know what the driver's council is. The team owner's council is essentially a more the same concept, It's a more right? formal version of, of that. Yeah. Right. So. And every month you guys meet with NASCAR and kind of discuss competition direction and in terms of like the costs and rules and that sort of thing. Uh, well, the, well, the team owner council is meant to be a kind of a quarterly forum primarily to have the team principals and the top folks from NASCAR together to talk about the most important issues. Sometimes it's competition related. Sometimes it's more about promotions or, or other sorts of things. You know, it's, it's the business side of the sport um, not, as opposed to the, there's a lot of people who focus on the technical stuff, the rules, the parts and pieces. There's, there's competition people dedicated having the team owners debating about the shape of a splitter or something like that <laughs> is typically not the best way to success. It's, yeah. it's, you know, what are the key principles and things we're trying to drive in terms of promoting? What can we do better? How are we doing in social media and digital? What's going on, you know, medium term as opposed to just the next race. The teams are happy to try things and, and, and experiment. I think with the proper notice, I think that my question often is what's the goal, right? If you want to make, for example, all tracks over two miles, effectively a restrictor plate style race like you have at Daytona and Talladega. Okay, that, if that's the goal and everyone's agreed that that's the goal, let's figure out the best way to do it. If you want to make every race that's a mile and a half like that, okay, if that's the goal, let's figure that out. <clears throat> I think the challenge has been what's the act defining the goal? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just I think just saying we want better racing is not a very specific target. Like, well, what is a better good race? A good race is different things to different people. So I think it'd be good to step back a second and say, what are you trying to solve for exactly? Mm -hmm. And uh, 
then then put the technical people to work and figure out what the best way to do it is. To be clear, the, the teams are, I think, as, as a group, very open to try anything that can increase the popularity in, uh, of the sport and and the integrity of it is, is is important to the team. So I think that's everyone's aligned on that. It's just a matter of how to do it. And the key, as you mentioned, is that when NASCAR elects to make changes, the teams bear the brunt of the costs. It, in this sort of case, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's right to be fair. Okay, if you want to think up an experiment, that's great. But if someone else has to pay for every experiment you think of, it, seem, it would seem fair to share the be- if there's a joint cost, there should be a joint benefit. The risk and reward should be shared, right? The more alignment we can have between people, right? The, the teams want people tuning in and watching races, however they watch it, paying attention to the sport, going to the state, you know, going to the actual venue. Everyone wants that. So the question is, you know, how do we how do we drive that the best way? Jimmy Johnson said, I, I don't know if you heard this, Rob. This this was probably like three or four years ago. I remember Jimmy fielding some questions about this, and he said, there's only so much he can ask the teams to do, that we've carried the water here a lot in trying to improve the cars. And he felt as if it was sort of maxed out on that side. And Jimmy's point was that the next place they should look maybe would be racetracks. And certainly we've seen that shift a little bit the last couple of years. They're using traction compound more. But there's probably only so much you can do <laughs> right, with exactly. a two and a half mile track versus a short track which is probably what more fans would like to see well i think that exactly that that, that kind of comes back to the uh, i think that's right it comes back to the what's good racing so constantly changing the cars to get a result we've done that for the past decade and you've had mixed results i think where we race is pretty fundamental you know we were talking about before okay bowman gray it's little you know mixing bowl sort of track I'm not sure you can run cup cars on that, but you'll certainly get an exciting race. So the venue is something that's important to address. I think in NASCAR, for a lot of reasons historically, the venue seems to be very fixed, that there's very little flexibility in where we race. So it's kind of coming back to changing other, you know, the, the parameters of the cars rather than changing the parameters where we race, right? If you raced at a Bristol versus, you know, sh- you know, half mile short track versus a mile and a half, it's just going to be a different type of race versus a road course. So maybe stepping back and looking at how and where we race as on venues is something we should take a look at the next step rather than just parts and pieces of the cars. We were talking about Bowman Gray, and I was there for the first time last weekend, and I was sort of amazed by <laughs> the, the feature race. One guy led the entire way. was a 104-lap feature race. He led every lap, but you know, maybe I wasn't on the right social media channel at Bowman Gray to know, but I didn't sense a lot of like negative fan feedback. It seemed like everybody was really cheering and, and seemed generally satisfied with the type of racing. I almost feel as if it's as much like a marketing question as much as a, a competition question, right? It seems like it. It seems like it's a, uh, a complicated answer to a simple question. You know, what is a good race? What's a fun event? Yeah. It's, it's different things to different people. I used a silly analogy that you know it's like good pizza some people like thin crust some people like thick crust some people like more tomato sauce some people like more cheese maybe this sounds kind of weird in a podcast but you know (laughs) it's it's different you know different people have different tastes and there's not gonna be one thing that works all the time so it's it's a probably a combination of things of excitement being special i think also the history like if you take a look at what they've done with uh darlington right in the throwback weekend okay well that's the opposite that's going back and reaching into NASCAR's history, and it's an exciting event. People dress up. It's a lot of fun. You know, so 
I don't think there's one standard answer. I just think maybe as a group, we should step back and say, should we have a broader view of what we can do? Mm-hmm. Um, and also I have some, you know, that you have to respect the past and the history and that it's a competition. Okay, well, there's a history of NASCAR. People don't like to change things a lot. So there's a, histor- a historical continuity to the sport that I think needs to be respected. I think also is an integrity of competition aspect. So you could put a flaming hoop jump on the back straight and maybe that would be exciting but what is that right it's it's, it's a race and you know the best drivers the most competitive teams on the best tracks racing for a championship is 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 fundamental to what we're trying to do so to me rob the essence of competition seems to be mostly that you know you ask like what's what's a good race to me it's just about is the outcome somewhat in doubt I mean, are you watching something where you feel like it's competitive because one guy isn't preordained the winner? You know, maybe that's illusory in, in some ways, and maybe at short tracks, it's always going to seem like the outcome is, is in doubt because everybody's a little bit closer than at a super speedway. But that, to me, is sort of the essence of racing, right? Is that everybody's competing for a checkered flag, and as long as you're watching and feeling as if one guy isn't stomping the rest of the field, it's a pretty good race, right? That's a fair opinion, I think. A little bit in the eye of the beholder, though. Okay, it's a race, so where's the competition integrity? So you could throw a yellow flag with two laps to go in every single race and sort of get what you're talking about. Yeah. That doesn't seem very, that (laughs) seems kind of contrived, right? So that would be the extreme example. So maybe that's a little too, you know, once in a while, someone's just got an advantage they stayed out or you know have tires or whatever their strategy was and they've got some advantage and can they make it to the end or not and and you know is there a late caution is there not a late caution do you maintain i mean i've been lucky enough we've had some cars that have won races and until that checkered flag flies you're not confident at all what the result is right so it's uh like I say, a complicated answer to a simple question. You mentioned that you also talked to NASCAR about marketing and digital social media stuff. Where do you see where NASCAR is on that? Uh, well, I think it's it, there's a lot of effort in that regard. A lot of focus by NASCAR. A lot of focus by the teams. A lot of focus by the media partners. Um, you know, clearly the world's evolving in terms of you know, digital media and the like, a podcast or, or whatever. Uh, so I think the industry needs to stay ahead of the curve and adapt to how are people consuming racing and sports and make sure we deliver it in the right channels so i'm far from the best expert in this stuff but i think that representing the team association the teams as a whole are concerned and focused on making sure we adapt and do things that stay relevant that the tv broadcasts are extremely important the physical races on site are extremely important but then the third part of it which is the digital and social presence you know how is that evolving how are we delivering it how do we deliver it best quality is 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 a ongoing and difficult question but something we have to keep working on and rta is working on of course and recently hired an executive director in jonathan marshall i've heard you talk about esports being a direction for nascar to look at where do you see nascar in the esports world i think esports is a is a fast-growing topic that is uh you know, people looked at it's kind of grown quickly out of sort of nowhere um, but when you look into it deeply there's some real connections to racing the simulators and the simulation stuff that the teams do themselves <clears throat> so the the v racing sort of stuff is is, is as close to racing as you're going to get mm-hmm. without actually being in a car and putting yourself at risk but then a lot of the most popular esports have nothing you know nothing to do with the real world they're fantasy games where you're 
you know, having a sword and dragon fights and laser beams and things. So, so the biggest and most popular ones in esports have nothing to do with actual sports. So, I think it's another area that we should try to work on and see where we can find things that are interesting for people. I don't think it's a be all end all. Mm-hmm. I think that it's another le- it's another arrow in the quiver, so to speak, of trying to appeal to an audience and be popular and and uh, but it's it's not a not an end in itself it's just a thing we should try and see if we can engage with you know get the teams involved get the drivers involved um, see if we could have some fun with it I think that's that's really the goal possible that maybe teams could each have their own esports team or car or yeah I, like I, I think yeah. that'd be fun I mean you know to see okay the virtual Hendrick Motorsports team racing the virtual you know Chip Ganassi racing team or your favorite race team right I think that'd be fun and having actual current drivers and maybe young kids that don't even have a driver's license racing each other there's a lot of potential I don't have the the answers of what the best result is but I think we should be open-minded about trying different things and see if we can find something that's fun and popular that that serves the goal which is increasing the the popularity of the sport get people interested in racing and uh if your goal is to be a race car driver, it's a lot easier and cheaper to have one and crash in virtual world <laughs> than in real world. So I would encourage uh, trying that. So. That certainly seems to appeal to kids these days, that's for sure. One of the big stories of the season so far has been about the potential sale of NASCAR. There's only so much we can really say because a, a lot of it is speculative, but obviously that would affect you and your role as the RTA. And I'm just wondering when you guys look at that or when you hear about that, it, how would it affect the RTA if, if something like that were to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it was really came via the media. It wasn't something NASCAR came out and said they're doing. So I think really the people in Daytona are the ones who have to address that more directly rather than me of what they're they're trying to do or looking at. So I don't really have a specific answer. You know, Formula One has changed hands and had different owners. Um, is there some strategic partnership that NASCAR could pursue? Perhaps. I mean, I would argue the most strategic partner of NASCAR are their current strategic partners, which are the teams and the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything that helps align the interests between those groups more is better. So, you know, if, if something happens, you know, hopefully I think the teams are important to participate. It's hard to have a race without the race teams. So I think someone would talk to us and try to make sure we're engaged and figure out how, how we continue to improve the sport. But, uh, Specifically, yeah, I don't really know. Well, Roger Penske joked in Indianapolis that the only thing he could say for sure was he wasn't interested in buying. <laughs> <laughs> Ticket, we could rule you out as as well as a potential. Uh, I wouldn't say that. If it's actually <laughs> for sale. I'd be interested to talk about it. But uh, like I say, I think the people in Daytona are the best people to talk to, talk to speak to that. So, how would you characterize your relationship right now with Daytona and with NASCAR? Well, as individuals, I think I. Th- I like to think I have a good relationship with the different members of the France family, with the senior management of NASCAR, um, been able to uh, work through a lot of issues and I think improve a number of things. There's good communication flow. I think a lot of the processes we have have been good. Like any business, not everyone agrees on everything every day of the week, which is fine. Um, But I think there's a good process now for communicating. It's improved over the past couple of years. So I think it's a, my view, it's a good productive relationship and uh, continue to work on it. How are you um, feeling about your role at Ganassi Racing these days? It's much different from what you had at Michael Waltrip and that you're affiliated with an organization that, that isn't stock cars, that isn't an Indy car, that isn't sports cars. 
Yeah, I think both have been interesting and rewarding in their own ways. They clearly had some challenges at MWR, but you know, Michael's a great person and 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 a, and a good friend. Um, a lot of great people there as well. Um, and uh, but Chip Ganassi Racing, I'm a, I'm a minority partner. Right, Chip really runs the team. His name's on the door. It's it's his business. I try to what I could do to help. You know, probably more on the business side than on the commercials. You know, the commercial side rather than in, in the competition related stuff. But uh, it's great fun and uh, you know awesome people there and uh having personally since i am a big race fan of all kinds of different racing i think going from the daytona 24 hours to the daytona 500 to the indy 500 to le mans and, and spa it's it's to me it's, it's pretty good fun and i'm enjoying it a lot obviously as a car guy as we discussed exactly you get to get experience all types of cars still haven't driven one of those new ford gt racers yet that's that's still a goal but uh chip maybe, can make that happen right well maybe when they're done they're kind of busy with them right now maybe when, <laughs> maybe when they're done racing them i'll get a chance well you mentioned that earlier so you're going to be racing in france after the 24 hours uh yeah but it, in the old car so i so i'm going to take the 1966 car over for a vintage race in uh, vintage car racing, the cars are expensive and the racing is cheap. And in modern <laughs> racing, the cars are cheaper and the racing is expensive. So pick your pick your poison. Somewhere we're going to find a way to have this all meet in the middle eventually <laughs> in the racing world. They're both expensive. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the one common denominator. Rob, thanks a lot. No, thank you. My pleasure. As always, if you are a listener to the NASCAR NBC podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Please leave a rating or review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Oh, my charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.